0: This is Women Behind Wool, a podcast introducing you to the female face of the Australian wool industry. Our guest on the podcast today is paediatrician Dr Meredith Sheil, who created Trisulfan which is the spray-on anaesthesia that is
1: used on lambs at meals in time. So for this podcast, we probably need to explain mulesing a little bit because you might have heard this term in the news and not really known what it meant. Um, It's a little bit gross, which is probably why it doesn't get explained in detail, but we'll do it. So mulesing is a surgical procedure that lambs traditionally all went through or go through um, where... The extra skin folds around the breech or the backside area are taken off, um, which is to prevent them getting covered in poo and wee later on, and then flies get attracted to the poo and wee and lay their eggs in the skin folds, and essentially start eating away at the sheep. They eat the flesh of the sheep, so it's um, can be then a really difficult thing to treat. If you imagine thousands of sheep out in the paddocks and you've got to drive around looking to see which ones of these have got it and if the sheep end up dying from it it's a horrible slow painful way to die so mulesing is done um, to prevent that. Enter Dr Meredith who who is this very
0: unique combination of a paediatrician and a wool grower and a mum and she put all of her skills to work in at a time when the industry, the wool industry, was under a lot of pressure from animal rights groups to reform their practices. And she developed a solution, which was trisulfan, that was ethical, it was humane, and it was also completely practical. So it is spray-on and it can be used used in such a large scale across so many australian farms and i think she says the uptake was absolutely phenomenal and now her solution trisulfan is used between um 70 and 8 on 70 to 80 percent of lambs in australia
1: what i love about this story is um You've probably never heard the name of Dr Meredith Sheil, but we just had to get her onto this podcast because she has done arguably more to bring the Australian wool industry into the 21st century than anyone else in the last 20 years and she is so ridiculously humble when you listen to her story. You'll giggle at the fact that she takes no credit for it whatsoever. She talks about this amazing achievement as if it's just um, something that anyone would do in their nine-to-five job. Yeah, so humble and I just think that after speaking to her
0: and getting to know her a little bit more personally that she's just so, so impressive and if she, if there was a Wool Industry Hall of Fame then Dr Meredith Scheel would definitely be in it.
2: I moved into paediatrics very early on. I was always interested in, I think, helping uh, people that couldn't help themselves or, you know, vulnerable, uh, vulnerable people. Um, And to me, children were the kind of epitome of that. And I moved into paediatric cardiology, uh, which is looking after children with heart conditions. So really what we were doing, we were looking after kids who came into hospital with abnormalities of the heart um, and then we would plan their surgery and then we would also look after them in the post-operative period um, which was a a critical time for their survival and I had started um, or was just completing a PhD looking at how we could better improve survival in children who underwent heart surgery at the time when we um, bought the sheep property at Ilford. So I was in a very sort of uh, detailed, complex area of medicine, if you like, um, where a lot of the research work I was doing was looking at um, post-operative management, um, wound care, pain mitigation in children having really quite major um, surgery.
0: Why did you buy
2: the farm? That was probably most related to my, um, my husband, Uh, I had always loved, as a a child, I'd always loved um, going out to the country. Uh, I had a a great love of horse riding. And um, so in my school holidays, my mother always sent me off to country camp or horse riding camp. And I had always wanted to um, I'd always loved that lifestyle and I'd always wanted to have a property where we could have horses. And um, when I got married, I, I married a man who's the sort of person who, um, when he wants something, he goes out and gets it rather than just sitting around always wishing. And, um, and I took him to a friend's property, uh, which was a sheep property, and he um, just really enjoyed the lifestyle. And after that, he said, okay, you know, you've always wanted a property. You've always wanted somewhere we can ride horses. He'd always wanted somewhere he could ride motorbikes. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and, um, and we'd always, I don't know, I'd always had a great love of wool. Um, and so, yeah, we just sort of bit the bullet and, and, and looked around for a property that we could afford so that was in, within sort of three hours of Sydney. Um, and bit the bullet and jumped in the deep end.
0: Where did this inherent love of wool come from?
2: I don't know the answer to that. I think it, I think it came from a love of um, nature, uh, the sort of history and heritage of, uh, of Australia as well. Um, um, you know, the, the concept that, that Australia had grown up on the sheep's back um, um, the stories around that of shearing sheds um, the and the um i guess the camaraderie or I, I i don't know what it was but when we when we bought the farm um what we noticed very early on was that country ethic that was just missing in the city. Um, we, we just we just got welcomed. Mm. Um, we used to drive up on a Friday evening, so we'd spend the week at work, and we had a young family at that stage. We used to drive up to the farm on a Friday evening, and arrive to find our next door neighbour had had come into the house and lit the fires mm. for us and turned on the lights, so that you know when we arrived and it's freezing cold up there in the Central Tablelands in the middle of the night. You know the house was warm and welcoming, and and you know that sort of um community spirit, if you like, is it, gone from the city, I think, um, but is still very much alive in the country. And um, we just became absorbed as part of that, and uh, it became intrinsic to our happiness, I
0: guess. And the smaller the community, the better, almost. <laughs>
2: Yeah, um, and, you know, you, you, when when we'd go up there, we'd end up, you, you'd bump into your next-door neighbour, you know, out in the paddocks or something and you stop for a yarn and you, you just got to know people, you know, and they got to know you much better than in the city where, you know, you, you might not even know your next-door neighbour, you hardly ever speak to them <laughs> despite the fact you live cheek by jowl, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um For us, I think my my husband and I, we spend a lot of time also in a very clinical environment, so, you know, um, very sterile clinical environment. And um, to be able to get out to the country and be surrounded by just air, dirt, grass, um, nature, timber, (laughs) Mm. Uh, it it was very therapeutic, you know, good for the soul. And I, and I think the love of wool is a part of that, just the natural biodegradable, um, raw, natural um, feeling that you get from it, the softness, the lanolin, the smell of it, the um, the sounds and sights of of, you know, sheep being mustered by dogs and rolling up the fence lines and, uh, the dirt and dust, and uh, it's it a complete antithesis of the sort of sterile, clinical, intense environment that that we've spent most of our lives in the rest of the
0: time. As soon as you bought the farm, did you buy your fine wool merinos? And why?
2: Yes, we started off with 400 uh, weathers, and... Um, and built up our understanding and knowledge of of uh, how to manage sheep and how to produce wool um, slowly over time. So we didn't actually have our first use probably um, until about two thousand and three. Our first drop of lambs
0: um, around two thousand three, two thousand and four. Okay. And why did you why did you choose merinos? You could have had cattle.
2: Well, the country where we are is. Probably not good enough carrying country for cattle. We, a few people do run cattle, but it's mostly merino country. Um, it's sort of steep, steep light grazing country. and um, But I also, you know, we also uh, just really like the idea of raising animals for, for wool rather than meat production production. Um, I can't explain why that was. That was just um, something that it was kind of in. Uh, maybe it was just that whole um, sort of love I had for the history and heritage of, of uh, Australia, colonial Australia, Australia, if you like, and 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 the um, the wool industry. Does that stem just wanting to be part of, wanting to be part of that? Maybe
0: does that stem from a a person who influenced you as a child or an experience that, that you had when you were growing up, I wonder?
2: Possibly because we're very good friends with, uh, if, if, if so, it'd be because of our friendship with um, the Olsen family uh, who had a, a, a grazing merino property at, at Goulburn. Um, and we used to visit down there. Um, probably the first time that I visited shearing sheds and saw um, merino farming in action um, was, was down on the merino property at Goulburn. And, I mean, it's, it's stunningly beautiful country. It's um, wool. Once you feel wool shorn from a sheep, it's, it's hard not to fall in love with it, freshly shorn wool. Um, so it might have been just that combination of uh, experiencing that when we went to Goulburn. And was that when
0: you were a child?
2: No, that was when I was in my late teens and early 20s, yeah. Mm -hmm. Up until then, um, most of my country visiting had been for horseback riding, so it had mostly been on probably um, uh, mixed mixed
0: farming stations with cattle and sheep. So you mentioned that in 2003, so about four years after you bought your property was your first lambing. Um, what did you and Matt think when the first time that you saw lamb marking and mulesing?
2: I'm going to confess that I um, I found it a, a bit shocking, um, mostly because I've, I couldn't conceive... The lambs were so small and um, I felt that, you know, by the time you did castration, mulesing and tail docking all at the one time, um, and then they just went straight back to the pasture, I couldn't conceive how they (laughs) were going to still be up and around and moving the next day. Um, You know, I thought I would go back the next day and find them really um, struggling. I was surprised to find how well they had recovered after the first 24 hours. Um, But having said that, you know, I do remember looking back and, you know, just because of my experience of looking after wounds in newborns, newborn humans, you know, humans are much more immature as newborns than lambs. You know, they can't walk, for example. But, yeah, the
0: the recovery of the lambs um, surprised me. Was this the moment where the cogs started to turn for what did eventually become trisulfan?
2: It was interesting because it was, uh, you know, my first experience of of um, landmarking was only shortly before um, the animal rights campaign um, started, which was in two thousand and four. Um, so it's it's hard for me to say when the cogs started turning. But, you know, when the animal rights campaign started, one of the things that they were um, saying was that they were accusing farmers of cruelty, um, which I felt was unfair, Um, but I also, um, they were accusing farmers of skinning animals alive without anaesthetic. Um, And and what I, um, just the combination of the work that I'd done in newborns um, obviously with open heart wounds and, you know, visualising what had happened with lambs um, with marking, it triggered the thought process that there wasn't anything available for farmers to use. Um, You know, I understood that the procedure needed to be done and why it needed to be done. But what occurred to me was there was nothing there for farmers to use to treat the wounds in any way, whether it was, um, you know, for pain relief but also for blood loss and also for antisepsis. And, you know, those are the basic things that we do for wound treatment in humans. That was where the, the thought processes started around, you know, well, why is there nothing there and what can we do to um, adapt? You know, I, I understood that, that we couldn't just take what we do in... Um, infants and newborns and and apply that to in the field use for uh, marking where you might be doing you know hundreds of lambs a day out out in the outback somewhere general anesthesia for example knocking them out um, or even local anesthesia injecting local anesthesia um, was not going to be practical and was not necessarily going to be safe and effective in those environments. And so it started me thinking: Well, how can we adapt what we do know and what we have to at least um, deliver a, some sort of pain relief and some sort of wound care? And so that's where the cog started to turn.
0: What was the catalyst for you really starting to take it seriously and to take action on developing a product?
2: I think that sprung from conversations around a barbecue table with our friends, the, the Olsons. Um, they, you know, we, um, as I said, you know, they were involved with the wool industry as well. Um, and, we, and pretty much everyone in the wool industry at that time was having discussions around, the, you know, what, what was being said about wool growers. Um, and, um, and our friend, uh, Chick Olson and his wife, Michelle, you know, said, well, you guys are doctors. Surely there's some sort of anaesthetic, you know, they're saying that we're skinning animals alive without anaesthetic, you know, surely there's some sort of anaesthetic we could develop. And that was really where the whole process started because um, my husband and I sort of... um, threw around ideas and said, well, you can't really give them general anesthetics and injecting them um, with local anesthesia would probably cause as much pain as the procedure itself. And, um, you know, would be very difficult over over the area that you'd need to do and would involve double handling. So, you know, possibly the best you could do would be to develop a spray on um, topical product that you just apply immediately after the procedure, because, you know, the procedures are very quick um, and when a, a procedure like that is done quickly, it actually doesn't involve a lot of pain. And if you can get the ana- if you can get the anaesthetic on so that it works within seconds, um, then you know you're going to be addressing the major part of the pain involved with the procedure. And it, then the challenge would be to see how long you could get that to last. Um, We took that idea um, to see if we could get some grant money, such as through AWI at the time, and were unsuccessful in that endeavour. And so um, eventually, um, I guess through Chick's entrepreneurial type thinking, um, he pulled together um, a, a little group of us and we decided to start our own research and development company. And um, we all put in some funding and got some uh, veterinary advisors on board and uh, undertook the first feasibility trials.
0: Why were you unsuccessful in, in that first endeavour? Um,
2: you know, looking back, it's a number of, uh, a number of factors. Um, there wasn't a lot of faith that we could get a product that would work. Um, and there wasn't a lot of faith that even if we did get a product that would work, that farmers would take it up. Mm -hmm. Uh, because there was nothing in that space. And um, we, we believe that if there was a product that was practical and affordable, that farmers would use it. Um, There was a lot of um, disbelief about that um, at the beginning as well. So,
0: you know, we had to do the proof of concept. And was it obvious to you from the beginning that there was already a a solution that existed in other industries or were you um starting from scratch we were really starting from scratch um
2: that you know pain relief for livestock has really been left behind Uh, and the reason for that i think is because of the complexities and cost involved with um developing products to meet regulatory standards and in particular food safety standards. Um, that just puts an additional layer of cost and complexity on pharmaceutical development that is not there for veterinary drugs in, for example, um, companion animals or in humans. And um, so, for example, in I think it was in the 1990s, they brought in new requirements for food safety um, um, for use of drugs in in livestock, um, that everyone will be familiar with, um, such as the need for MRLs, meat residue levels, and the standards that were required, and the detail and complexity of studies required to meet those standards, was enormous, and. And that actually resulted in a lot of companies pulling products from the market. So up until then, lidocaine, lignocaine and bupivacaine, now they're the most standard local anesthetics that are used in human medicine and veterinary medicine. Um, they're, They're the most, lidocaine's the most common one used, you know, for if you go and have a tooth extraction or something, the... Um, medicine that will be injected is lignocaine. And if you go and have something cut out, a a mole or something like that, then the the local anaesthetics that injected is is lidocaine. Um, And bupivacaine is a long-acting anaesthetic that's the most commonly used one for post-operative pain relief in human medicine and probably veterinary medicine as well. But those products were pulled from the market in most cases for livestock because... Um, companies didn't have the money and resources to go and do the complex studies that were required for proving human safety, human food safety. And that's the way it stayed since the 1990s. And um, because of those complexities, medicines that are available for use in humans and dogs and cats and horses are just not available for use in livestock. And so they really, really got left behind and so, we're really, what we're doing now is playing catch up.
0: So, how many years was it when, from from your when you started up your uh, own research and development company to Trisulfan being in the market?
2: We started um, the preliminary work on it in my memory is two thousand and four. Um, it had a very relatively quick passage into the market because um, it managed we managed to get it through under sort of emergency use, an emergency use permit for its use for lambs. And that was because of the trade threats that were going on. And that was um, with an exceptionally long withhold period for, for food safety, so a 90-day withhold period. Um, now, that, that was not a problem because um, for these particular uses that, that we've been developing product use, um, it's for use in animals when they're newborn, or you know, within the first weeks of life, and they don't go to market for years or months, you know, months or years after that. So having a long withhold period like that is not a is not a problem for on farm use, um, and and the APVMA was able to approve use of the product under under those sort of circum, uh, emergency permit circumstances, and what we did. Um, was collect data from the first thousands or tens of thousands of cases of uses which helped support the the follow-up formal registration of the product um, um, over time. So the actual product registration um, took several years.
0: Although it was already in use. Yes, it was yes. in use
2: under an emergency use permit.
0: Okay, so Meredith, what was the hardest part of the journey? Was it developing the product, or was it convincing the industry that that this was that this was the product for the industry, or was it actually getting it to market?
2: Um, developing the product. Um, was actually not difficult, um, and the reason for that is because uh, because there's so much history history of use data in humans and animals. Um, you know, picking the right picking the right um, cake mix of ingredients. Um, I, I had a lot of background data to use to work to to choose those background ingredients, and then when we did our first studies. Um, you didn't need <laughs> you didn't need highfalutin tests to be able to tell it worked. You could tell with your eyes. You know, you could just see the difference in the lambs before and after treatment. And you know that if you can see it with your eyes, you're going to be able to prove it with um, the, with the the techniques that are necessary for the regulatory programs. Um, so that part of it was was never difficult. The um, and interestingly also. Um, getting farmers to use it was never difficult either Um, you know we were just we were amazed but also vindicated I think in how rapidly it was taken up by Australian wool growers Um, and it just sort of proved my my point that the problem was not that um, farmers were cruel the problem was that they didn't have any products to use Um, and and I think that Getting a product into the market and the response of farmers uh, across Australia, wool growers across Australia, in taking it up, that has what is what has changed the market. You know, it's it's kind of proven to other people that there is a market for for pain relief products out there, and that's sort of driven not just uh, our ongoing program because we've expanded. It was initially approved for mulesing, and we've expanded that to castration and tail docking in lambs. And then also castration and disbudding in calves. Um, And we're now also internationally working on expanding it for use of um, pain relief for piglet castration. And and also now um, use in adult um, animals as well. So for hoof ulcers and foot and mouth disease and things like that. Anywhere basically where you've got a painful wound, um, we've been expanding the use of the product. but, but it's, I think, just stimulated a global movement to get more products available for livestock. Um, so, th- so that was not the problem either. The, the real complexity is getting it through the regulations that are required in every jurisdiction, every different animal species, every different wound type. Um, the complexity of proving its safety, proving its efficacy, proving its food safety um, um, to, to the levels required by the drug regulatory bodies, that's where the complexity lies and that's where the time consumption is and that's where the, um, um, the, the costs um, and major hurdles are.
0: And what was it like uh, being a, a female in this space? Because the wool industry is and was quite heavily dominated by males and you mentioned before that your initial approach was sort of unsuccessful how did it take you a while for for you to be taken seriously um it was
2: it was really interesting being involved in the wool industry over that time because um in 2008 Because of uh, my involvement with the wool industry um, and the development of Trisulfan, I ended up um, elected to the Australian, uh, the Board of Australian Wool Innovation. And during that time, I also ended up quite heavily involved in negotiations, if you like, that were going on between uh, the wool industry in Australia and the international retail industry uh, with regard to the image of Australian wool and meeting social um, corporate social responsibility criteria, and um, you know, facilitating or arguing against the sort of um, campaign that was being waged against the Australian wool industry um, in a, at the other end in the retail sphere. Um, one story in particular that I that sort of epitomises the the difference that was going on was um, there was a meeting of a task force an Australian wool industry task force that I was invited to come and speak to uh, um, this is before I was on the wool uh, elected to the wool board I was invited to come and speak to them about the pain relief option and the development of trisulfan and um, how that how that might play out in in terms of trying to resolve the um, trade embargoes that that were threatened, and so I went in um, to this meeting, and uh, I was a youngish female, if you like, in a room full of crusty old men. I'm going to say, <laughs> they <That's funny>. <laughs> <laughs> crusty old men, but they were, um, you know, epitomised the wool industry um, body at that stage. Um, anyway, I had I had long long discussions with them, and then left the room. And then, interestingly, after that, um, we were invited through um, through Bayer um, because Bayer, at this by this stage, Bayer were marketing um, trisulfon overseas, and a retail group in Europe. Um, wanted information about um, the trisulfan product and the use of pain relief in sheep. And so through Bayer, they had invited me to come over and speak to a group, of a retail consortium group. Um, And so I went over there to speak with them. And when I stepped into the room... I was the eldest woman of a bunch of very young women that were controlling the corporate social responsibility and and retail and buying agenda, if you like, for these big retail companies overseas. And, you know, the difference between stepping into the environment in the Australian wool industry and the environment in the retail, the corporate social responsibility uh, um, segment of the uh, retail industry was just chalk and cheese, you know. Mm. And I think I have felt all these years uh, working on the wallboard as a little bit of a bridge, if you like, between um, city and country, um, um, maybe the sort of more modern female ethos. I, I'm not going to say that it is a female ethos. It's a more modern, you know, the more modern um, welfare corporate social responsibility uh, movement mm. and the more traditional more traditional farming movement but yeah i felt like a bridge between the two and and it's not because one is more welfare conscious than the other it's just they speak a different language
0: mm. Yeah, and did you feel um, some comfort in that you were effective in that way, that you were able to provide a, a bridge between something so important?
2: Look, I hope I, I have been. And, um, you know, my experience on the wool board was um, that it certainly evolved over that time. You know, I, uh, it evolved from um, when when I started on the wallboard. board AWI was responding to the campaigns with threats of legal action. Um, And by the time I left the War Board, you know, we had a um, comprehensive program of sort of stepwise improvements of of how we could um, move forward with stepwise improvements in animal welfare, but also how we could better articulate Um, the welfare standards of the, you know, the high welfare standards of the Australian wool industry and the care and compassion, if you like, of of Australian wool growers um, to the world. So, um, you know, there was an enormous evolution during that time. Mm, Less Um, defensive, more proactive. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Meredith, do you know what the percentage is now of the industry that uses trisulfan?
2: I believe about between 70 and 80 percent of lambs marked are treated with trisulfan. It's it's enormous, um, particularly considering the logistics, logistic constraints. You know, of a, a large number of properties, just in terms of where they're located and um, environment and uh, access to access to medications. Um, but you know, the uptake has been has been phenomenal.
0: Can you believe what you've been able to achieve for an industry that you never grew up a part of and that you just love and you've got this unique set of skills to to offer can can you do you reflect on that
2: I do I I reflect on how fortunate I've been you know just I feel like a little bit of I've been really fortunate to be in, in the right place at the right time I've 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 been fortunate in the way that um, the wool industry has um, people in the wool industry have accepted me and worked with me. You know, we've had farmers across the length and breadth of Australia offer up offer up their properties for us and and properties for us to do trials on, um, um, give us feedback on on you know, the use of the product and and how we we could improve it. And, you know, people come up to me all the time. I I just I feel fortunate. I feel blessed. Um, I just feel lucky. (laughs) We think you should be
0: celebrated more because (laughs) what you've achieved is probably the single best innovation and solution for the wool industry ever. Oh, I don't know about that. But what, um,
2: you know, it's and, and and I certainly haven't done it on my own. It's the wool industry, the wool growers of Australia have been part of it, critical in part of it. I couldn't have done it without them. And as, as have my partners, um, you know, Chicken Michelle Olson and our third partner, Alan Giffard and his wife, Steph, as a researcher, um, you know, I play a certain role, but you know, I can't stress the importance of having a good business manager and, and commercialization partner, you know, people with those sort of skills, form part of a critical team when you're developing um, new products and pharmaceuticals. Um, science is just one, is just one arm of what's needed in, in that process. And I think that's also why, you um, you know why the product has been so successful is is you know we've had such a good little team in our animal ethics company, um, with a combination of skills. So it's not just me.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you foresee as the next big challenge for the wool industry?
2: Look, the biggest challenges for the wool industry um, that that I saw um, during my time on the board were actually to do with international um, events. So it was um, 9-11, the Iraq war, it was um, and coronavirus. Um, so things that collapse international confidence have the greatest impact on the wall industry. And the most important thing, I think, for us to be doing is is all the things that we are doing is supporting productivity on farm, making it easier for farmers, um, you know, to grow the beautiful product that they grow, um, um, to do it in a sustainable and environmentally um, sustainable and welfare-conscious way, um, to be at the leading edge of that, which I think wool growers in Australia are, Um, and also to be marketing ourselves, to be putting that message out there because we have to be, if we're not out there putting our message out about um, the fabulous nature of the, of the product and the industry, no one's going to do it for us and people are going to fill that space with their own negative messaging. Yeah. Um, and and so, you know, when we're doing that, that's that's like fertilising the p- paddock and allowing you know, allowing farmers to then go and plant the seed and grow their own crop of wool, you know what I mean? So it's important for us to be doing that, constantly doing that, constantly driving it, um, because that's what gets us through all these troughs of international trauma um, so that confidence collapse in the international uh, retail industry, for example, you know, for, for, for everything that wool goes into that we're ready and willing and able and set to go as soon as that picks up again afterwards so and that's what we that's what we have seen and that's where i think you know australian wool innovation but also all the work that farmers do at ground level you know we we just have to be constantly placing ourselves at that at that position where even when the market is is collapsing we know that the, the market's going to come through that and we're ready to go Um, when it does you
0: know there's no more that we can do than what we're doing I don't think so tell me about your farm this year um how many merinos have you got at the moment and how are they going after you know the the drought that we've just been through and what's your wool looking like in production (laughs) give me a snapshot of life on the farm at we, this year.
2: Yeah, we um, have just come out of um, a, a really prolonged drought. Having said that, um, we, I can't complain because we didn't have it as tough as as a lot of people. Um, so we managed by um, destocking. Um, so we normally carry up to about two thousand um, um, ewes with lambs. Um, and we just stopped to probably about half that number. Um, we managed to get away mostly without feeding, um, which, you know, was <laughs> put us in a, a vastly improved situation than a, the majority of the country during the, the most recent droughts. Uh, we got ringed by fire. Um, so early in um, 2020, um, you know, we were really, we were almost out of water and we were ringed by fire, but uh, luckily we didn't get burned out. Um, and then the rains came. And so, um, you know, now the, the property just hasn't looked this good for, I don't know, a decade or more. Um, we're rebuilding our sheep numbers. And um, the wool that we've produced is <laughs> because of, uh, until recently, until uh, this, until recently, you know, lack of weed Um The wool has just been spectacular. We're now participating in that rejuvenation, if you like, that's going on across New South Wales in most regions. And it's just phenomenal to see, you know, um, the change in mood, um, people coming out of their fear and depression, um, the working together that happened during the fires. um, It's um, just... It's... It's one of the only good things that happened in 2020. You know, the rest of the world was just going into um, collapse with coronavirus, and yet the the regional areas of Australia were going through a revival. So it was one of the things that kept us going.
0: Absolutely. Tell me, how often do you get to the farm? How much time do you spend there? And what's your favourite job?
2: (laughs) We mostly get to go um, to the farm on weekends and then, of course, we'll go in school holidays and when um, when there's a week, the shearing week, for example, we'll, we'll try and organise to be up there. Um, favourite farm job? Um, being involved with, with mustering and bringing the sheep in, it would probably be my favourite thing to do. Um, um, it's just... It's just so amazing to watch, um, particularly on a, in our country, because we're we're up high at the top of a ridge, and um, so when you know we'll, we'll stand up at the top of the at the top of the hills and send send the dogs out, mm. <laughs> and just watching um, how fast they go, how talented they are um, at sort of mobbing the sheep together, and then just bringing them up the hill slowly. Um, it's, it's almost like a dance isn't it it's like poetry in motion and um and i get to what because of the topography of the country we get to watch it as almost as if it's from a drone because you're watching them from above um, and um and i love watching <laughs> love watching the, the interaction of the sheep people always think of sheep as not being in, particularly intelligent. I just think that they have got their own unique intelligence. I love when you go to muster them, you go out and you'll think that there's not a sheep in the paddock, but if you look carefully, you can just see a line of eyes, you know, <laughs> lined up across the, the back of a ridge and they've got their eye on you. But they <laughs> um, I, I think they've just got their own intelligence. I love watching the interaction between sheep and dogs. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, obviously working in the in the Shearing Shed as well. So.
0: Well, Meredith, thank you so much <laughs> for sharing your story with us. It's, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. So thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Women Behind Wool podcast. If you like what we're doing here, please help us to spread the love for wool. You can share this episode on your Instagram stories and if you subscribe to iTunes, a fresh episode will be waiting for you each Monday morning. Our website is womenbehindwool.com.au Stay warm and rugged up in your wool and we'll be back with you next week.